0: Hey, Charlie Jane. Hey, Annalie. So are you ready to go back in time?
1: You know it. I would love to actually hop in a time vector right now and go back to the before times.
0: Yeah, so that's why we're bringing you an episode this week that is from the before times. We're going to go all the way back to that innocent year of 2018 to bring you a classic show about history and alternate history. We actually took we took a field trip to to make this show, actually. Right, Charlie Jane? That's right. Yeah.
1: This is our episode about history and alternate history and how to use real history in your historical fantasy. And we went all the way to Denver Comic-Con
0: to talk to some of our favorite authors. We talked to Rebecca Kwong, who you might know from the number one bestseller she has out right now called Yellow Face. And at the time we talked to her, she was in the middle of writing her first trilogy, which started with the Poppy War. So she talks to us about how she incorporated real history into those books and we also track down connie willis a grand yeah. yeah um the author of classics like the doomsday book and blackout and all clear and she has a new novel out right now
1: called road to roswell it's about aliens and weddings and it's like it's a kind of classic caper it's really fun yes and yes classic so we connie to- willis two absolute legends uh we're super stoked that we got to talk to these folks and yeah even though you know the sound quality adalie tell them about the sound quality please
0: i mean let's just say this is one of our early episodes and um during the interviews uh we were using let's call them Humble microphones, and um, at one point I was interviewing Connie Willis like on the floor at Denver Comic Con, so you can kind of hear the crowds swirling around us. Lots of atmosphere. Yeah, plenty of it atmosphere. atmosphere. Yes, it's it's the sound that history makes when you um, drag it into the present. So anyway, we're super excited to bring you this classic episode, and we hope that you enjoy journeying with us into another timeline to um, revisit history. And thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. And we will have another classic episode for you in a couple weeks and then we'll be back with new episodes in late summer. All right. See you then. Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the inner meaning of science fiction. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer, and I kind of think about science all the time. It's true. She's like never not thinking about science. And this week we're going to be talking about how there's just a kind of feeling going around that we're in the wrong timeline. And I think we all have been feeling a little jarred out of the time that we thought we were in. And so what we're going to do in this episode is think about alternate timelines real history, fake history, alternate history, and what it tells us about our actual lives, our actual present.
1: Yeah, so let's go back in time.
0: So some of this got started actually because I was thinking a lot about Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings, which are not history at all. So they're not in any way, they're not an alternate history. They're not even pretending really to be on Earth. And I think that we often forget that these kinds of stories actually kind of function as medieval history for us in a certain way, Mm -hmm. even though we know they're fake.
1: I mean, Game of Thrones draws heavily on things like the Hundred Years War and other real historical events, but also embellishes a lot and has this kind of, you know, somewhat idiosyncratic view of what the Middle Ages was like.
0: And of course, Tolkien, uh, who wrote Lord of the Rings, was actually a medievalist and did study the medieval period and the many different uh, dialects in the UK that people spoke. And so when he made up languages like Elvish and Dwarvish, um, you know, he was actually thinking about, you know, Middle English um, and and Anglo-Saxon to a certain extent. So one of the terms that is used for these kinds of stories is that they're secondary world stories. So what what does that mean, Charlie?
1: I mean, a secondary world is basically it's a version of our world, but we've changed enough stuff that it's not Earth anymore. Often the continents have a different shape and Major historical circumstances are different. Sometimes the climate is different, like in Westeros, where they have these long winters and long summers. There are often like huge changes, and yet you can kind of sort of recognize our world. Like Westeros looks a little bit like England or like Brit, Great Britain, and you know there are other Middle Earth worlds. is
0: clearly supposed to be England in some way.
1: Yeah, there's often you know in the Jacqueline Carey books there's like France basically in Germany and the stuff. The Fedra book. Yeah, Yeah, the Fedra books. So, you know, there's often some recognizable qualities of our world, but it's magical and basic stuff is really different. And it allows you a certain freedom to be ahistorical while also kind of playing around with real history.
0: And secondary world fantasies have become, I think, really popular over the past five years. We have people like Kin Liu writing secondary world fantasies, the book the traitor Baru Cormorant is another secondary world fantasy. Max Gladstone is writing secondary world fantasies. And Rebecca Kwong, who we're going to talk to uh, in a few minutes on this episode, wrote The Poppy War, which is also a secondary world uh, historical uh, work. And one of the things that strikes me as being so as being compelling about these stories or one of the things that draws me to these stories is that I think they function – kind of like the way history did you know hundreds of years ago or even thousands of years ago when for example in rome when virgil writes the aeneid that's the official history of rome even though it's just a bunch of made-up shit. you know it's basically like these guys were raised by a wolf and like there was this great hero and like you know it's not it's not actual history uh, but at the same time it served as a history of the nation and I think that things like Lord of the Rings, especially for me anyway, it kind of functions in the same way. And and it feels like when you're reading it that or when you're watching the films that you can gain a kind of um, solace from feeling like people like you back in historical times faced the same kind of Dark horrors and and terrible decisions that we do today, and that and that, even though we know it's made up, it feels like, you know, no, it's going to be fine because other people have faced even graver dangers.
2: I wish the ring had never come to me.
0: I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to. Do. Do with the time that is given to us. Yeah, I love that clip. I know, and I think about <clears throat> I think about Gandalf saying that all the time. Like whenever I'm at a moment where I'm just feeling like overwhelmed by political issues or overwhelmed by Supreme Court decisions, I, I'm like, okay you know what Gandalf said? (laughs) He said that, you know, we don't have a choice of when we live, but just how we live in those times.
1: Yeah, and that is kind of a perspective about history, that you're living through a particular historical time, which might be terrifying or challenging, but you still have to stick with it. And the thing that I find fascinating about those secondary worlds is often they're a little bit larger than life. There's the conflict between good and evil that's more clear-cut, or in some cases, just more epic. Like I think Game of Thrones, good and evil are not as clear-cut. But it's epic and larger than life. And there still are some epic. Terrible I mean, people. there's freaking dragons. And there's freaking dragons. And often part of what happens that kind of makes them, you know, more kind of big and exciting and weird is that religion has changed. Like one of the big things that happens is that I don't know when I've seen a secondary world that had the Middle Ages with the Catholic Church. like. Game of Thrones, there's some version of the Catholic Church, but it's only in Westeros, and the rest of the world doesn't have Catholicism. And even their version of Catholicism is not really Catholicism. Yeah, I was
0: going to say like maybe the His Dark Materials trilogy, right? except even there, it's a very transformed version of Catholicism. Like, yeah. it's not it's not our world, and you mentioned um, Jacqueline Carey's Fedra series mm-hmm. earlier, and that has a really, yeah, just a wacky version of Christianity. It's like a version
1: of Christianity where Jesus has had a
0: son who was very sex positive and basically just
1: went around telling people to love however they wanted to, and he had all these companions who were like supporting sex workers and like everybody's incredibly sex positive and it's awesome and bisexual.
0: It's like it's Jesus's bisexual son founds a religion.
1: Yeah, and it's super awesome and it's kind of wish fulfillment for those of us who wish Christianity was like more you know liberal and permissive in real life, but it's also like the Middle Ages, like the Catholic Church was a big deal in the Middle Ages. And when you remove it, you just have a very different political and social context all around.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the exciting things that's happening in secondary worlds now, I mentioned Ken Liu earlier, um, a lot of writers are coming in and saying like, oh, by the way, um, you know, that whole like European Middle Ages thing with Christianity, like that was only actually happening in Europe and like all of the rest of the world was like dealing with other issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we sat down at Denver Comic-Con with Rebecca Kwong who wrote The Poppy War, which just came out. It's getting tons of critical acclaim. And it's a secondary world fantastical retelling of the Sino-Japanese wars. And so it kind of sweeps through um, Chinese history in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And the trilogy is going to take us all the way up through the present day. And she's changed, as you said, Uh, She's changed a lot of the religion. So there's a shamanistic religion where characters actually can call down gods Mm -hmm. by smoking opium because, you know, you got to have little drugs in there. And there's actually a whole host of political reasons that um, Rebecca chose to use opium in this way um, as something that's empowering. And she talked to us about how... Her work as an academic, she's about to go to grad school and uh, study this exact historical period in China, the sort of late 19th, early 20th century, and how that uh, research played into how she tells her fantasy stories and how much her secondary world is really related.
3: What I study is a lot of fun because it's not just military history, it's also war memorialization and collective memory and collective trauma, a lot of which comes down to stories, right? Like the narratives that we tell each other and the ways that we remember things, which is linked so intricately to like how I approach fiction, right? Like who do you make the main character? Like how do you illustrate what happened? Like who's the victor and who's writing the history? So it's a lot of historiography and it's a lot of public narrative and memory. Etc. So, like, I wrote my senior thesis on the commemoration of the Nanjing Massacre. So, not the Nanjing Massacre proper, because, like, at this point, we there's like sufficient consensus on like what actually happened. Like, people are still bickering over the numbers, and that's unclear. I'm like fairly convinced that 300,000 people actually died. What people don't talk about is that this horrible thing happened, and then the Chinese Communist Party sort of just did not publicly commemorate it or talk about it until the 1980s slash 1990s when it became a convenient political narrative to tell. And the standard argument is, oh, the communists didn't want to seem weak. They didn't want to keep bringing up this like narrative of atrocity and weakness at a time when they had just gotten control of the country, and they didn't want to admit that. But once they were in a position of relative power in the 80s and 90s, like uh, compared to like the rest of the world, or, like, ascending power. Then they were like, oh, we need, like, a moral upper hand against Japan, and this is one way to do it. Uh, And my thesis actually finds that the narrative of the Nanjing Massacre was not as suppressed as people argue through the 1950s to the 1980s, and it actually crops up Quite often, but in direct uh, response to diplomatic crises with the United States or Japan. So during the Korean War, Nanjing becomes a whole thing, and people are like, "Oh." And the other funny thing is that the narrative back then was the American soldiers and American missionaries were complicit with the Nanjing massacre; they covered it up, and the missionaries there like allowed it to happen and gave people away to Japanese soldiers. So that's used as a like to incite anti-american sentiment and then by the 1980s/90s like the Americans are suddenly the heroes, right? And Japan is the enemy. So it's really interesting to see like how that narrative has changed politically according to people's like needs and motivations, which like is so deeply related to why and how we tell stories, right? Like and that's something you always have to think about when you're writing a novel, who does this narrative serve and like who does it make happy and like who Is it giving, like, the moral high ground, too?
0: I think it's so interesting that she says that part of the way we narrate actual history, uh, particularly around these horrific events like the Nanjing Massacre, plays into how she writes novels, and how Mm -hmm. when she's writing a novel, she's thinking about who does the story serve? I think that's such an important question.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we always say that, you know, science fiction or whatever that's about the future is really about the time in which it was written. Like, people might write something that's set in the 30th century, and it's really about the 20th century or the 21st century when they wrote that book. But I think the reverse is true. People who write history, whether actual history textbooks or fictionalized versions of history are really writing for the present and about the present. And so you have things where like in the US at various times We've had textbooks and history books that were like, slavery wasn't so bad. Slavery was good. It was all fine. And then – And also, by the way, there was no genocide of Native Americans. Right. That yeah, was exactly. That is
0: so exaggerated.
1: And you have different history books at different times kind of downplaying or erasing unpleasant parts of history or massively exaggerating and overemphasizing other parts of history because that narrative serves the people in charge. And then, you know, you have corrections to that. But history is always filtered through the prism of the present.
0: And it's, it's always under revision. And so in a sense, uh, these secondary worlds, as I said, they really are serving the function of history, except they are actually flagging themselves as fantasy. And so in a sense, they're more honest than history itself, because they're saying, actually, I really am just telling a story. And this really is just made up. But at the same time, it resonates with our actual experiences as a a civilization. So I talked to Max Gladstone a number of months ago about uh, Three Parts Dead, which is the first novel in his amazing craft cycle, which is Uh, very much a secondary world full of magic, magical lawyers, actually. So it's it's not that much of a secondary world (laughs) because some lawyers are magical. Three Parts Dead is explicitly about the financial collapse in, you know, the late 10s. He specifically created this character of a god whose body is dying and each piece of that body has been leveraged into a financial instrument and all of these different groups are fighting over who's going to get these pieces of this dying god uh, and how they're going to turn it into profit. And uh, so it was very much about uh, the financial industry. And this is a, re- a way of using recent history uh, in these secondary worlds. The Matrix is older than you know. I prefer counting from the emergence of one integral anomaly to the emergence of the next, in which case this is the sixth version. Five, five ones before
2: me. <laughs> there are only two possible explanations. There were five ones before me. Either no one told me. <laughs> or no one knows. Precisely.
0: Another thing about science fiction and fantasy is that an ongoing theme is this idea that everything that we've seen has already happened before. So there's been six versions of The Matrix and yeah like, and Battlestar
1: know. Galactica. This has all happened before, and it will happen again, and it becomes like a big. Yeah. Same. It's
0: it's this idea that that history is cyclical. And no matter how far we go into the future or if we all upload our brains into computers, we will still be at some point meeting some old white guy in a room who says, actually, this is the <laughs> sixth version of yourself, Neo. Um, and Neo will be like, dude, but I have really awesome sunglasses this time. Um, and that'll be like, you know, the whole movie. But I mean, this goes back to, for example, the classic sci-fi novel Canticle for Leibowitz*, which is basically about how, you know, far in the future we have a medieval civilization again, because mm-hmm. we just can't seem to escape from from that kind of structure. And I was also thinking about how this is fundamentally what Planet of the Apes is about, that both the first film series and the recent film series are both about how History is cyclical in this incredibly broad sense. Like it's not just that humans keep making the same mistakes, but it's that if humans are replaced by another species, they will make the same mistakes that we did.
1: Yeah, and actually Planet of the Apes becomes fully cyclical because they send Caesar back in time in the original movies. And he starts the cycle over again, like literally as a time loop. Uh, There's also the thing where King Arthur is supposed to come back. As like the once in future king, you know, he's asleep somewhere and he's uh, going to come back. And a lot of King Arthur stories have him coming back and the whole Camelot legend starting again. Like all of the old characters come back. There's a Doctor Who episode. I know I mentioned Doctor Who yeah, a lot. We, where we, that can't, happens. we
0: can't have an episode of Our Opinions Are Correct without <laughs> correctly identifying Doctor Who as the most important narrative.
1: And there's a... Comic book called uh, Camelot three thousand, where it's like the year three thousand, and King Arthur and all the knights come back, and Mordred comes back, and Morgan comes back.
0: You know that. So you bringing that up was making me think about how the Cthulhu mythos is also about that idea of this like deep cyclical time, where of course, if you have delved into the original H.P. Lovecraft stories, or or even you know modern takes on them. The whole idea is that there was a fight between different alien groups at this super ancient period in history, probably during, um, you know, like proto-history, like maybe half a billion years ago. There were a bunch of aliens who were like super sort of like classical antiquity on earth like they were like the ancient Romans and they were super according to Lovecraft super awesome they were fighting the Cthulian type aliens who were like all tentically and like were really into like miscegenation and stuff Um, not that it was in reference to any actual racial politics jeez Um, I'm saying that fully sarcastically because I think we all know that H.P. Lovecraft had a very racist agenda and in fact identified himself as a white supremacist But at any rate, his idea is that Cthulhu will come back and that this is going to be the rise of something really dark. And he often associated the rise of Cthulhu with immigrants coming into the U.S. and with people of color intermingling with white people. And that is, again, I mean, that's a conservative view of that. But...
1: Yeah. I mean, first of all, I now understand the Cthulhu mythos, which is something that I've never
0: fully understood (laughs) before.
1: But you explained it really clearly. But also... Um, I think that, you know, if you grow up studying history, like I grew up, my mom was a historian, and I grew up very aware that like even though the United States was in a period of relative prosperity and relative ease – that it wasn't going to last and that good times never last, empires fall, civilizations fall. You know, it's that thing in Asimov's Foundation where it's like people know that this amazing civilization they've built is not going to last because they've read Gibbons,
0: I guess. Who wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire.
1: Exactly. And so if you know about that, you know that your wonderful civilization, your great empire will also fall, that anything that is Beautiful and shining is going to fall into disrepair, that there's going to be some kind of Ozymandias thing where you go back and there's just like some shattered remain of something with this look upon my works, ye mighty kind of thing written on it. And that's just inevitable, like nothing lasts and, you know, bad times always come.
0: One of the things that um, Rebecca talked to us about uh, when we were talking about the Poppy War was how there's the cyclical nature of history that is at the civilizational level that you're describing, but that it's also... It can be very personal. Here, uh, you'll hear her talking about that and about how repeating history is also very similar to repeating trauma. And the cycle of trauma uh, that we think of as kind of an intergenerational psychological thing also plays itself out on a historical scale.
3: But the Poppy War deals a lot with the cyclical nature of Pain and trauma and dehumanization. So an oft made argument, like about the Holocaust, is like never again, right? By confronting what has happened, this will never happen again. And Japan's treatment of the Rape of Nanjing has been uh, compared badly to Germany's treatment of the Holocaust because Japan, like, did not make that a part of like mandatory public education. Like there was no like formal governmental apology, etc. And I really believe in the argument that unless we examine that painful past, it will crop up again. But at the same time, like, examining trauma trauma also means examining the other side's trauma. And part of the story that doesn't get told is the brutalization of young Japanese boys who were forced into the army to serve as, like, mindless soldiers for the emperor. And there has to be an acknowledgement of pain and hurt on both sides uh, in order for us to move on. Because I really don't like this, like, moral high grounds, like, argument that, like, you were so horrible to me, so it's all on you. Often that's the case, but, like, people and like, Oftentimes people in the conquering empire or country like were hurting badly as well. And it's important to understand all of those power structures and how they were suffering jointly in order to like move on, because then you like form You form unions, right, or like alliances between people who never want that to ever happen again.
0: I love how she finishes up that comment where she it's a very hopeful moment where she says, you know, look, if we can if we can remember that there's trauma on both sides, like that's when we begin to break out of this cycle of repeating. And it made me think of the TV show version of The Magicians, actually, which is about a secondary world, Fillory. And it's also about a kind of fake history, but it's also about the cycle of trauma from child abuse, because the big bad in the first season of the show, and I think in the books as well, is Martin Chatwin, who becomes like the super scary beast in Fillory. And the reason why he's become the beast is because he was sexually abused by the dude who wrote the Fillory novels. Mm -hmm. And so his sexual trauma gets visited onto the next generation in the form often of sexual trauma. And so there's this whole mishmash of historical trauma, but also very personal domestic trauma that comes from sexual abuse.
1: And I think that is a feature of trauma is the idea that it's cyclical that you know people who are traumatized inflict trauma on others, which leads them to inflict trauma on others. and that's how it can gets, you know, the vicious circle gets re- continued. And you know, breaking that circle is a major concern in a lot of fiction and like figuring out ways to not... Keep hurting each other when we've been hurt ourselves. It's you know, and I think that is a thing in the national consciousness too. Like when you have horrible historical injustices that are still very much in the present, how do you keep those from making people unable to live together peacefully? Going and I think the that's future?
0: that's the argument behind things like reparations. Absolutely, you know, reparations are about trying to break out of that cycle by acknowledging the damage that was done. So the question is, we have this history of trauma. It's historical trauma. It's civilizational trauma. It's like intergenerational trauma. How do we break out of it? Like, what does fiction tell us about that? Now, wait a minute. The doctors put us down right in the middle of the French Revolution. The reign of The Reign
1: of Terror. I love how she says that. It's just like, the Reign of Terror. So that
0: was from an old Doctor Who episode? That was from an
1: old Doctor Who episode called The Reign of Terror, (laughs) (laughs) actually. uh, That was the title of the the serial. And it's about visiting the French Revolution. And back then, back in the 60s, Doctor Who used to just visit historical times and kind of hang out. And, like, they would meet regular people. Sometimes they would, like, meet, like, Marco Polo and Napoleon and stuff. But about half the time they were just meeting random people in history who are just hanging out and trying to survive. And that's something that a lot of time travel narratives do, in part, where they just kind of hang out in history and you get invested in the lives of people who are living at a time when you're like, oh, are they going to really be able to get through this? Is it going to be bad? Are they going to get killed in that volcanic eruption in Pompeii? Or... You know, this this genocide that we know is coming. And, you know, being invested in the lives of ordinary people living in history and kind of understanding what it was like to live through a terrible time in history from the point of view of someone who is just trying to stay alive is one of the best ways to kind of understand, like, the power of history and, like, how we can survive it.
0: Yeah, I think that... When we look back, we, you know, in real history or allegedly real history, we often focus on the the big names. You know, it's what did Joan of Arc do? What did Napoleon do? And we know what they did and we know that they either survived or didn't survive. And it doesn't help. It doesn't help someone like me who is not Napoleon, hopefully, um, as far as I know, it doesn't help someone like me imagine how I would make it through a tough time in the present. Because I'm like, well, I am not actually an emperor. So what's at my disposal? So I love that Doctor Who goes back and meets just regular people. And that's something that we see a lot in the work of Connie Willis, who's one of our most celebrated historical fiction writers. She does great time travel stories. She also does just historical fiction. She does science fiction. She's done everything. She's won every award. She's amazing. And we were lucky enough to catch up with her on the floor at Denver Comic-Con, which means that um, we're going to play a couple clips of her, but you can hear in the background like crazy amounts of of people yelling and freaking out because like it's Comic-Con. So one of the things that Connie pointed out is that her goal as a writer is to introduce readers to regular people. And um, one of her most famous historical novels is called Doomsday Book. And it's about a time traveler historian who wants to go back and see what it was like during the first wave of the bubonic plague in England, which took out about 50% of the population. And so it was incredibly devastating. And what we see is that... Uh, You know, of course, it's it's a novel, so there's like some shenanigans and the character gets trapped in history, so she has to live through a much longer period than she thought, but she's also been inoculated against the plague, so she knows that she'll survive. She takes refuge in a village. And throughout the course of the novel, we get to know all of the people in this village. They become very human to us, even though medieval life is, of course, very different from modern life. But they still have like squabbles and domestic triumphs and they they do silly theatrical productions. And then they all fucking die. And it is so devastating to watch that happen. And it's a really long novel. It's ri- I'm not giving all spoilers because there's so much stuff that happens but what we learn is that surviving such a thing is, is really difficult. So here's um, Connie talking about uh, how she hopes that we can avoid repeating history.
2: The only hope we have of changing and not repeating history is if we really go back and imagine what this was really like to live through. And I grew up reading, um, for instance, Leon Uris' books, where he was writing about the Holocaust and the start of Israel and all those things. And I felt like they were so much more valuable than any historical book that I could read, because it was like how it really was and what the people suffered. what they went through and stuff. So I think that's our only hope ever in literature, too, is 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 connecting with other people and thinking what it was really like.
0: Recently, Connie Willis published a duology about World War II. Uh, the two books are called Blackout and All Clear. And it's a similar kind of uh, scenario to Doomsday Book. It's the same, um, some of the same characters, in fact, who are historians who are going back in time, uh, the main character wants to study this period and winds up getting stuck there. And it's the same kind of thing where we see her encountering all ordinary people. There's no famous fancy people except at the very periphery of the of the narrative. It's mostly about girls who work in department stores and how they dealt with the bombing of London. It's a lot less dark than the Doomsday Book for sure. She really feels like that's how we get out of these feedback loops of history is by starting to identify with regular people, you know, realizing that ordinary people lived through these times. It wasn't just Churchill. You know, who cares about Churchill? I actually literally do not care. I like
1: Churchill. He's cute. I'm way
0: more interested in the women who worked at Selfridges, like, honestly. And that's why I love those books, because I was like, I, yeah, I know what Churchill did. He, like, grew up to be Gary Oldman or whatever. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So what are some other examples of stories where we kind of just meet regular people?
1: I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that I love about a lot of alternate history recently, like the Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, is that it creates very compelling characters who are in a kind of tweaked version of the actual history of slavery and really makes you identify with them and deal with the complexity of their lives and then horribly twists the knife and makes you feel how un you know how unjust and brutal and and barbaric that system was and i think that that's the kind of history we need now and also history of ordinary people who are surviving terrible things and are who are getting through it somehow.
0: And that makes me think of Lovecraft Country, which is about to be made into a TV series from Jordan Peele.
1: Yeah, that book by Matt Ruff, which is super fascinating, takes place in the 1950s and involves this cast of African-American characters who are just ordinary people trying to get on with their lives, except that it turns out that one of them is the illegitimate son of this rich family who have this kind of mystical power and connection to some kind of otherworldly force. because he is one of their heirs, he's one of the few people who can control that power, so they want to control him. And it's all about him trying to survive and take control of this historical, in this power that he's inherited. Uh, but it is also just about a group of ordinary African-American people trying to just stay in one piece during this sort of Jim Crow era, where You know, one of the features that comes up a lot is this thing called the Negro Motorist's Guide that tells them where to stop, that's safe to get food and lodgings and things where they won't be harassed. Oh, man. And that apparently was a real thing. And there's a lot of just like, how do you get through life? in a society where people are constantly trying to destroy you, which unfortunately is very relevant now.
0: Yeah, it is. And I think it's interesting in light of what we were saying earlier about the Cthulhu mythos that it kind of brings up Lovecraft as mm-hmm. being part of the American cycle of repeated abuse and, and kind of um, face-planting uh, of, <laughs> of our values. Um, that was a really tortured metaphor. But I also think like there's a couple of other novels in that area like um, Octavia Butler's classic novel Kindred, which is about a black woman living in the 70s who finds herself transported back in time to the plantation where her ancestors worked. And what she finds out is that she's there to protect her ancestor so that she can be born. And it turns out that that ancestor is the creepy white dude who runs the plantation. And so she's trying to protect both her African-American ancestor, but also this shitty white dude mm-hmm. uh, who's not completely shitty. And that's what's really complex and interesting about the book is that she ends up forming this kind of relationship with him that's very complex. It's it's very Octavia Butler. She never gives you something that's just one dimensional. It's always like 12 dimensions. And it's, it's that same idea. It's like, how do ordinary people deal with slavery? How do people survive under these extraordinary circumstances? One of the other things that Connie told us when I was talking to her is that one of the things that repeats over and over one of the cycles is that people always act like we're in this time that's unprecedented and, you know, that we've never had such terrible circumstances before. And and partly that's because they don't know that much about how ordinary people lived in previous times. And so here's what she says about that.
2: But it's always been hopeless. I mean, we've repeated, I mean, this, everybody's saying all these things about, oh my God, we're in this awful age where the rich have all the money. and, And I'm like, oh, yes, like the Gilded Age. And before that, the French Revolution. And before that, you know, but uh, but I, I do think in a sense history can educate us because I look at, say, the current administration, for instance, and I'm like, have, I'm saying this about twice a week. Have none of you ever seen a movie? Have none of you ever read a book? If you did, you would realize how this is all going to turn out.
1: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think there have been long stretches of history where ordinary people lived in straightened, terrible circumstances where they were completely powerless and abused. And, you know, part of what people worry about is that we will go through another long period like that again, but also just that it might even just be, you know, a relatively brief but horrible period of violence and oppression. Uh, Yeah, I love
0: that that Connie just says, you know, haven't you ever read a book or seen a movie? (laughs) And I I love that she says that because she doesn't say, haven't you read a history book? She's actually, I think, talking about fiction. And in fact, she later said that she really wished that Trump would read Sweeney Todd um, or go watch Sweeney Todd (laughs) so that he knows how revenge turns out. Again, this goes back to the secondary world and how secondary worlds help us think about our real history because what we learn from fiction um, is often the same lesson that we learn from real history. And fiction just fills in a lot of the emotional gaps that are left in, in non-fictional histories by saying, like, here's, you know, based on what we know, here's how regular people would have dealt with this problem. And so I often think about, if we could get people to read some books about about history, uh, secondary world books, I'm not talking about nonfiction or even, you know, alternate histories, you know, what would we want people to be reading to, to cope with the age that we're in now or to give them more context for the age? I mean, other than, of course, reading Connie Willis and reading The Poppy War by Rebecca Kwong. What else would you want people to be reading?
1: I mean, I would actually want people to read a lot of alternate history. I already mentioned uh, the Underground Railroad and Lovecraft Country. I think people should be reading The Man in the High Castle by Philip K. Dick, which kind of conjures this world where the Nazis won and the United States is under the domination of the Nazis and the Japanese. And it kind of depicts a very realistic and plausible version of the United States under fascism that I think is super relevant right now unfortunately and I think in general like histories that show us how easily things could have turned out worse if we hadn't you know succeeded in struggling and fighting back and also histories that kind of give us that glimpse of how things could have been better if we had just had more empathy and more compassion and more positivity like the Fedra books by Jacqueline Carey I wish everybody would read those because it's this wonderful vision of a world where instead of this kind of anti-sex, anti-queer Religious hegemony. We have something that's very sex positive
0: and very, you know, accepting, and it's really beautiful. And religion is bound up with sensuality. I would definitely say reading *Kindred* is a great idea. The Octavia Butler book that I mentioned earlier. It's um, incredibly beautiful and smart. In K. Jemison's *Broken Earth* series, which is again specifically about the cyclical nature of history, and it's tied into climate change. So it has some of the same elements of *Game of Thrones*, where the characters are enduring a cyclical political problem of authoritarianism, but that's exacerbated by the fact that they live on a planet that has these cyclical periods of extreme climate change and um, mostly due to volcanism, but other problems as well. And I also keep returning to the movie Brazil, which is a goofy 80s movie from Terry Gilliam that's also incredibly dark. And it's about the future of the UK and how easily consumer capitalism merges with this like horrific bureaucratic authoritarianism to create this kind of nightmare landscape of people being really focused on TV ads, but also being having every aspect of their lives surveilled and regimented by this government. It's kind of like it's a little bit of 1984, but it's Terry Gilliam at his best. So it's just nutty and beautifully shot and really disturbing. And it's definitely a great film to kind of revisit.
1: I guess my final thought is that we always say that people who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, as if knowing history means that you won't be doomed to repeat it. And I think it's more accurate to say that knowing your history and understanding what it was like to live in historical times will help you to survive when history does repeat itself, because it will.
0: It helps you to prepare. And it was interesting because Until really recently, I had been one of those people that thought, you know, if you just knew enough about history, you just wouldn't do it again. And I don't think that's true anymore. And when we talked to Rebecca and Connie and, you know, other people, too, they kept saying things like, well, of course, we always repeat history. Like, that's not even a thing. You can't. It's not that you stop repeating. It's that you... Do it again, but better. You know, you you try to repair some of the damage. And that was why I really loved what Rebecca said about trauma, where you can deal with that history in a way that's more productive. And you can acknowledge, you know, how both sides were harmed in a particular battle, for example, or in in a massacre in this case. And that that can help you move on. It doesn't mean that you're going to be good and pure and wonderful from then on. You're never going to have another war. You're never going to have another massacre. But you can still become, you can be, as you said, you can be prepared for it. You can learn how to survive it and also learn how to recover from it better. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks to Veronica Simonetti at Women's Audio Mission for producing this episode. And you can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, on Libsyn, on Stitcher, on all the nice places that podcasts are found. Please subscribe. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at OOACpod.
1: Yeah, thanks also to Chris Palmer for the music. And thanks to uh, Rebecca Kwong and Connie Willis for talking to us. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon.